Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Matthew Bingham. We're going to be talking to Matthew about his new book Orthodox Radicals, Baptist Identity in the English Revolution just published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Uh, Matt, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here, thank you for having me. Can you tell us, before we begin talking about the book, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am an historian of early modern England, and in particular, um, religious history in early modern England. And I'm a lecturer in church history and systematic theology at Oak Hill College in North London. Very good. Now, this is your first book, I think, isn't it? Or your first solely authored book, at least. Yes, that's that's correct. Can you tell us something about the background to the book, Matt? Yeah, so the the book Orthodox Radicals um, grew out of my uh, PhD dissertation research, and the attempt was being made to investigate the history of 17th century English Baptists, mm. because looking at the uh, literature on English Baptists, it seemed that you had quite a bit that was written from a particular denominational perspective, and you had quite a bit on Baptists that sort of included them in broader studies of a radical religion in early modern England. But you, you didn't have much out there that offered a sort of critical, um, sort of mainstream, holistic analysis of Baptists as such during the 17th century. And so the research was an attempt to, to fill that gap. So you chose the title for your book, Orthodox Radicals, uh, Baptist Identity in the English Revolution. What, what are you getting at in choosing the title Orthodox Radicals? Yeah, so the, the idea was to try to capture what, what strikes me as, as maybe the most interesting thing about 17th century uh, English Baptists, or at least um, a certain strand of 17th century English Baptist, namely that while they're often classified under the heading radical religion and grouped with other uh, religious groups who, who emerged during the English Revolution, uh, they actually were surprisingly orthodox in their theology and their approach to uh, most things, orthodox as defined uh, by the standards of the day and the time, meaning holding to um, reformed Protestantism, as it was uh, represented by the larger sort of Puritan religious culture in mm. England at the time. Mm. How, how do we know that they held to that position? Well, we know that they held to that position because we see uh, their writings. They, they put forward a fair bit of material in which they told us what they believed on a variety of opinions. They put out a confession of faith in 1644 in which they were explicitly laying out, here's what we believe on all the major headings of, of doctrine. And this uh, document was intended, in fact, to demonstrate to uh, those who were suspicious of them exactly how orthodox they were. 
And yet, because on one piece of the doctrinal ledger, they, they differed quite radically, and that was, of course, their rejection of infant baptism or paedo-baptism, uh, they, they were both orthodox and radical. And the book tries to bring that out and give a, a picture of them. Huh. So... In 1644, the leaders of this very young movement, if movement's even the right term, put together this confession of faith. Uh, as you say, it's quite all-encompassing. It touches on the principal heads of the Christian religion as it was understood in the mid-17th century. They publish it. Uh, they, 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 they begin to distribute, distribute it. You've got a wonderful passage where you describe a couple of the authors, I think, of this pamphlet standing outside the, the gates of the the Westminster Assembly, where Presbyterian theologians were gathering uh, to, to, to define um, a, a really um, extraordinary mid-17th century statement of faith. Uh, and so that they're giving out this published statement, as you describe. And is it warmly welcomed? Are, are they warmly received and welcomed into the Orthodox fold? Uh, no, unfortunately, from their perspective, uh, they were not warmly welcomed. And, and the um, the... The incident you describe sort of paints a picture of how they related to the kind of mainstream Presbyterian religious culture of the day. You have these these two uh, gentlemen, Samuel Richardson and, and Benjamin Cox, and there they are standing outside of uh, the, the House of Commons, handing out copies of their confession, uh, trying in, in, in some way desperately to to make a positive impression. But uh, no, they were they were fairly roundly rejected by the Presbyterians who were uh, responsible for authoring the Westminster Assembly. Um, one one critic uh, described their their uh, their confession of faith. He said, "You know, yeah, it looks really orthodox, uh, but it's as though they they took a bit of uh, rat poison and just covered it in a in a heap of sugar, because we all know it might seem sweet. It's it's deadly in the details. It must have been terribly disappointing for them to discover they couldn't even give their confession of faith away." No, no, it was it was very difficult. Well, early in the book, you describe this period, mid seventeenth century England, as uh, a theological hothouse. Well, what do you mean by that, Matt? Yeah, it's uh, it was it was one of the most interesting times in terms of the the religious history of early modern England and and maybe early modern Europe more generally. For in the early sixteen forties, around sixteen forty one, the national church in England basically collapses. You have a, a sort of dual collapse, in fact. You have a, episcopacy falls apart, and so does print censorship. And so all of a sudden, you have this environment in which anyone can publish whatever they want to, basically, and there are no censors operative, and there are no bishops to enforce religious uniformity. So beginning in the 1640s, you have this amazing, unprecedented situation in which English people, English lay people, all of a sudden have a, have a sort of forum, a marketplace, as it were, to express their religious ideas. And some of these ideas were very radical indeed. Others were uh, less so. But the uh, end result was this period of just intense religious experimentation and a proliferation of new ideas. And the Baptists that I'm interested in were one such uh, new innovation to emerge during the 1640s. Now, Matt, I'm interested that you use the word Baptist to describe your subjects. We'll come back to that in, a, in just a second. Um, but can you give us some sense of the flavour of this theological hothouse? 
what were these other radical groups like? And why did Baptists struggle so much to distinguish themselves from them? Yeah, the, the, the religious uh, opinions on offer really uh, ran the gamut. And you, you had uh, some, some groups, you had all sorts of groups that uh, diggers and Muggletonians and ranters and Quakers, you had people expressing uh, all sorts of opinions. Some people were expressing the opinion that um, if you're a truly Christian, then God uh, doesn't see your sin and that you should be free to express yourself however you wish. And obviously one can see why that sort of opinion would be controversial to say the least. Uh, but this is the problem then for our Baptist friends, because if indeed they are on most points basically towing the, um, the, the party line, as it were, and yet on this one point of infant baptism, they're differing. They had a tendency to get lumped in with these much more extreme, much more fringe groups and their theological opponents would sort of lump them all together and just describe them all as uh, extreme fringe elements that were to be suppressed lest they overrun uh, the country and create all sorts of havoc. And one of the specters that you describe very eloquently in the book is the specter of Anabaptism. Uh, very interesting as you show that when the 1644 Confession gets published, its authors are at pains to distinguish themselves from the European Anabaptists, but yet within the polemics as it develops in the 1640s, the, the, the charge of Anabaptism is one which your subjects struggle to escape. Can you tell us, first of all, what Anabaptism represents in the mid-17th century, and secondly, why your subjects are so keen to evade that criticism? So this is, this is the chief um, burden that uh, my subjects bear throughout the period under discussion. Basically, they're called Anabaptists by almost everyone, and they even start to call themselves Anabaptists at points because they have no other label to use. Huh. But this is a label that they really wanted to distance themselves from. Uh, why? Well, Anabaptists, of course, um, raise specters of 16th century continental Anabaptists who were seen in the early modern English mind as synonymous with anarchy and uh, immorality and all manner of, of chaos and the dissolution of the uh, civil state and church. It, it all started in 1534 in Munster in Germany. There was a notorious incident in which a group of, of uh, very radical Anabaptists took over the city of Munster and imposed a sort of theocratic uh, kingdom of their own. Uh, this was violently suppressed, but it sort of cast a shadow over the early modern English mind. So here we are a hundred years on from that, and you still find um, English Presbyterians and others who are seeing people um, denying paedobaptism and saying, aha, you see, these people are just like their, their cousins in Germany a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. So they're getting lumped in with these people, and yet they're their whole um, polemic agenda is to distance themselves from these Anabaptists. So you see this curious linguistic phenomenon in which the Baptistic uh, folks that I'm profiling, they often will describe themselves not in terms of what they were, in terms of they don't have a positive descriptor, they say what they're not. So, for instance, uh, they'll, they'll talk about themselves in terms of um, those churches of God commonly, though falsely called Anabaptists. Mm -hmm. And they often are, are using this this um, this phrase falsely called 
Anabaptists, you see it again and again, their confession of faith, in fact, the 1644 confession is called the confession of faith of those churches which are commonly, though falsely, called Anabaptists. Mm. And so this is the uh, the burden that they have to bear to distance themselves from these people. But then what comes out is, you, you see, as they're trying to distance themselves from these Anabaptists from the 16th century, they don't really have the terms to use. They don't have the linguistic labels to identify themselves positively. And all they can do is say, well, we're, we're not these guys. We're, we're actually uh, something different. Mm-hmm. But what that is, they don't seem quite sure in the 1640s. Okay, so their, their enemies or their polemical opponents describe them as Anabaptists. Some of them describe themselves as Anabaptists, but most don't. Most of them struggle to know what to define themselves as. Why don't they use the word that we use, Baptist, and when do they begin to describe themselves in those terms? So this is this is the um, one of the curious things that uh, that started to emerge as as I was doing this research was that though historians fairly universally use the word Baptist to describe men and women who rejected paedo baptism during the 1640s in England. Uh, the, the reality is that no one at the time was using the term Baptist. Their opponents weren't using the term Baptists. They weren't using the term Baptist. So they didn't use the term because it, it didn't exist. Mm. And in fact, all through the 17th century, you really don't see the word Baptist come into widespread usage. Mm. Toward the end of the 17th century, it starts to come into play a little bit more. And then during the 18th century, it becomes a very common descriptor for people who reject paedo-baptism. But in the period that we're thinking about, the 1640s and 1650s, you really don't see it. Uh, The first usage comes from uh, Quaker polemicists in the 1650s Mm -hmm. who start to uh, write against the Baptists, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. and they start to use that term. But it's not adopted by the, quote-unquote, Baptists themselves until much later. Mm. So why is it that for the best part of 70 or 80 years, the participants in this movement don't know what to call themselves? Why can't they agree on a suitable descriptor, a suitable denominational name? Well, that is the great puzzle, I think, that has to be answered. And uh, the reason that I propose in the book, uh, I, I believe that the reason they're not referring to themselves as Baptists or some similar label is because um, though we sort of know how the story ends and we know that on into uh, here we are in the 21st century and Baptist is a, is a very, very large worldwide Christian denomination. At the time, of course, they're not thinking that way. And so what are they thinking? Well, they're looking at themselves. They're looking at their flavor of Christianity. And they are emerging from a Puritan religious culture, specifically a congregational Puritan religious culture. And they shift on this one point of doctrine. They decide that actually um, infants are not proper subjects for the sacrament of baptism. And so they shift their views on this one point. But that distinct shift, that discrete theological movement, does not then uh, immediately and automatically confer upon them a new theological identity. And so I've uh, begun to see these men and women really as congregationalists. They're congregational Puritans who change their mind about this one discrete theological issue 
And so in the book, I call them Baptistic Congregationalists mm-hmm. because it brings out the fact that at their, at their heart, they're uh, practitioners of what at the time was known as the congregational way, mm. but they are Baptistic. They've rejected infant baptism. And in fact, somewhere in the book, you describe William Kiffin, who was one of the leaders of this Anabaptist stroke, Baptist stroke question mark movement uh, as the first person to use the term congregational way. Is that significant? Yes. Yeah, so uh, William Kiffin, the, um, the quote unquote Baptist uh, leader, he was a he was a layman, but he was a pastor of a Baptistic church. And he indeed was the, the first person to use the term. And I do think this is uh, this is significant because if you look at the way in which uh, congregationalists are discussed, ways in which the congregational way, as it was called, is discussed, it, it's almost never with reference to Baptistic people. Hmm. And yet the person who coined it was indeed um, a person who rejected paedobaptism. He didn't see anything uh, incongruous about describing himself and his movement as uh, congregationalism or the congregational way. So you've written this very powerfully argued book, and I mean, it really is a long argument, a very historiographically weighted argument, um, arguing that there is no such thing as Baptist identity in inverted commas in the 17th century. How does your argument fit within the historiography? Well, it's, it's, it's very interesting because I think a lot of the, the observations in the book have been made elsewhere but they've always been disconnected and haven't been really drawn together. The dots haven't been connected in quite this way. So, for example, um, Jeffrey Nuttall noted in 1957 that William Kiffin was the first person to use the phrase the congregational way. Yeah. Um, now with the, the benefit of the early English Books Online database, we can now sort of confirm that indeed that is the first usage in a, in a way that wouldn't have been available to Nuttall in the 1950s. Yeah. But it's an example of something. So he's, he's making that observation, but he just makes it in passing, and he just carries on. And you'll see often um, people have, have noted in passing, for instance, the fact that the term Baptist wasn't really in use during this period, but then it, it, it's never taken anywhere. It's not, um, it's not connected. And so what uh, Orthodox Radicals tries to do is to try to focus in on this idea of who were these people and to think about their own self-identity as religious actors. How did they conceive of themselves? Where did they place themselves on the theological map? How did they see themselves in connection with other groups that were operative uh, at the same time? Who were their allies? Who were people with whom they did not share any affinities? Mm. How did they understand themselves? And then how should we understand them in turn? Mm. Great. Well, it's a complicated argument. In some ways, it's quite an iconoclastic argument. Uh, Very modestly, you say that aspects of it have been anticipated by other historians. But the way you put it together... Uh, it, it has a real explosive force, I think. How, how did you put it together, Matt? What's the structure of the book? And can you talk us through your thinking process about the stages uh, of your argument as it develops? Yeah, so essentially uh, there are five chapters in the book and the first three kind of work together to reconfigure our picture of Baptistic congregationalists. In In the first chapter... We, we really try to survey some of the historiography and the, the burden there is to 
ask some basic questions. Well, okay, if it's in fact the case that uh, they weren't calling themselves Baptists and um, they were really more uh, like Congregationalists, well, then, well how, how did we get here? What's going on? Sure. And in that chapter, we um, trace some of the historiography of early English Baptists and look at how the first historians, and actually all through the 18th century, the 19th century, on into the 20th century, um, really the the only people who were giving significant attention to Baptists during the 17th century were Baptist historians, denominational historians, who people who were uh, very openly and without any sort of um, embarrassment were people who were um, members of and, and standing in the theological stream they purport to describe. These were historians who saw themselves very much as as advocates for the Baptist cause and advocates for the Baptist story. And in the 18th and 19th centuries, that wasn't seen as, as something to be ashamed of. They were quite open about it. And so what ends up happening is they often are shaping the story that they're telling. And they're shaping the way in which they describe past actors in, in ways that I'm sure were useful for their uh, present purposes, but they actually introduced distortions. Mm-hmm. And the principal distortion that was introduced was by using this term Baptist to describe anyone and everyone who rejected infant baptism, mm-hmm. reject a sense of unity and cohesion onto uh, a whole diverse range of men and women who really had no cohesion and um, unity during the 17th century. And, yeah, and, and, and this is a very important point, isn't it? Because you, you give us examples like the example of Lucy Hutchinson, who rejected pedobaptism but never came to adopt the Baptist label for herself. So how do we describe these people who reject infant baptism but never take up this new denominational position? Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky thing because you can find lots of people uh, like Lucy Hutchinson, uh, people like John Toombs, who uh, continued to minister in the established church and yet uh, rejected paedobaptism. You have people like Henry Jesse, who was a minister of a uh, the the oldest congregational church in London and was happy enough to have paedobaptists and baptistic people side by side in his congregation. You have a whole range of people who are coming to change their mind about the legitimacy of paedobaptism. But in doing so, they, they don't automatically get slotted into this new category, Baptist. And that's the problem. When we talk about Baptist with a capital B, mm-hmm. it's, it's taking a, a denominational identity that uh, would not really coalesce until the 18th century yeah. and projecting it back into the 17th century. Yeah. So that's why I'm partial to, to the... Um, the adjectival use, Baptistic. So someone like Lucy Hutchinson, she's Baptistic yeah. the moment she rejects paedobaptism. But what else is she? Well, she would have identified broadly with a Puritan religious culture. Mm-hmm. And she would certainly have not uh, had the language of uh, Baptist with a capital B to categorize herself. I think one of the things that struck me most about your book, Matt, is the way in which your subjects are struggling to understand how important baptism is for them. So let's say the broader Puritan Presbyterian culture 
out of which mainly they emerge in the 1630s, 1640s, as it comes into Congregationalism, etc., etc. There's a very clear uh, response from a number of Presbyterian polemicists in particular that, that really berates these Anabaptists, as they call them, for their doctrine of baptism. So for, 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 for the Presbyterian polemicists, this is a very significant deviation from Reformed Orthodoxy. And yet, what your book shows is that your subjects, Baptists and inverted commas, they're not sure if baptism actually is that important, and that sometimes they're prepared, some of them are prepared to have fellowship, um, for example, in the Jesse Church, to have fellowship with other pedobaptists, and others want to make a much sharper distinction between um, infant baptism practice in churches and those other churches that only practice believers' baptism. Can you talk us through the various shades of opinion within this emerging movement about how important baptism is and perhaps even what baptism means as a consequence? Yes. So uh, baptism, generally speaking, is is the sign of entrance into the Christian life and the Christian community. It's, it's the starting point of one's inclusion in the, uh, the so-called visible church. And one of the things that uh, Christians had agreed upon for a long, long time, uh, all of Christendom, uh, Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox alike, uh, all there was, there was quite a um, unanimous consent on the point that uh, the infants of Christian parents were fit subjects for baptism, that they were to be included in the Christian community. And so this is why in the 16th century in Europe, when uh, Anabaptists are, uh, first start emerging and, and questioning this and rejecting it, it's such a shocking thing to people because they're not just um, rejecting a discrete point of theology that uh, might not have any practical import. They are rejecting one of the main planks upon which Christendom was built. Huh. And you see the uh, questioning of infant baptism is questioning the very idea of a, of a cohesive, comprehensive Christian community okay. in which to be a member of the state is to be a member of the church. And so when this uh, begins to break out in the 17th century in England, you can see many of the same reactions. This seems to be sort of Un, unraveling the um, the tapestry of Christendom and the whole idea of a national church is called into question. And so you see a whole range of, of responses. Um, but what you find is that among congregationalists, so mid-17th century England, you have Presbyterians, you have Episcopalians, you have congregationalists. And this is basically a dispute over uh, church government. And among congregationalists, who believed that the local congregation uh, would, should be the basic sort of ecclesiological unit, mm -hmm. they uh, manifest a range of opinions toward Baptists, but many of them are very friendly toward Baptists. Mm -hmm. Many of them are very uh, amenable to the idea that you might even have disagreement in a local church. Some might baptize their infants, others might not, and that's okay. Mm. Um, then, the interesting thing is among the Baptists, you have disagreement there as well. Some are willing to uh, be in these sort of mixed churches where some are baptizing infants, others aren't. Um, but some insist that no, uh, to be baptized is actually the starting point of the Christian life. And if we can't be in agreement on this, then we can't be 
uh, part of the same church together. So you, it's this fluid thing, but each aspect of this discussion, I think, reflects the, the way in which they're really dealing with something that hasn't been dealt with before. This is a new thing. Mm-hmm. And you haven't had these kind of conversations happening before because prior to 17th century England, where this really starts to emerge, uh, you just haven't had this sort of open debate over the subject of baptism before. So in the 1640s, uh, you show us Baptists, inverted commas, uh, are really struggling to articulate what they believe, how they relate to each other, how they relate to the broader environment in which they're placed. Does that change in the 1650s under Cromwell when, as you show, Baptists come in from the cold in a way? Yes, this is this is one of the really interesting um, aspects, I think, in terms of um, altering or at least modifying the existing historiography. People often will talk about uh, Cromwellian England and they'll talk about the, the religious toleration afforded. They'll talk about religious toleration afforded to um, Presbyterians, Independents and Baptists. Mm-hmm. But often in the in the existing histories, that's put out there rather casually. Like, well, of course, he would include these groups. But it was really a radical thing that was happening in the 1650s when the Cromwellian regime was uh, not just tolerating Baptists, but in, in significant senses embracing them and, and in significant senses promoting their views. This had never happened before. There had never been an example in, in Christendom of a Christian kingdom um, embracing and promoting people who rejected paedobaptism. Mm. Um, what we see during uh, the 1650s is that the Cromwellian regime actually decouples uh, baptism in the church of an infant and a inclusion in the uh, state uh, records of births. Mm. In other words, your uh, baptism in the church was no longer directly tied to the state's record of your birth. So this is giving um, explicit legal sanction for the Baptistic position. We see uh, Cromwell introducing a, a system of triers and ejectors, as he called them, in which uh, the nation's pulpits and who was fit to stand behind those pulpits was to be determined by this sort of council of people who would try um, candidates for ministry. And on this uh, council of triers and ejectors, there are quite a number of Baptistic Congregationalists represented. People like Henry Jesse and Hansard Knowles. These are people who are Baptistic and yet they are fit, they are seen as fit to determine who the nation's ministers will be. That's an incredible thing. It's, it's a wild thing. Uh, this is the, the, the Anabaptist error was something that um, as late as 1648, there was a blasphemy ordinance passed by uh, Presbyterian Parliament in which um, to deny paedobaptism was classified as a, as a serious theological heresy uh, that could uh, bring down penal sanctions on the guilty of holding it. And then just a few years later under Cromwell, you see those same people holding to that position are elevated to positions of power. Uh, Henry Lawrence, who served as the president of Cromwell's Council of State, he in fact was a Baptistic Congregationalist himself, had published on the subject. It's an incredible reversal unprecedented in in Christendom, and yet it often, I think, is treated uh, much too casually in the existing historiography. Mm. Well, you've turned your attention back to the historiography, Matt. What kind of impact do you hope 
your book will make in the way we think about this period? Well, I, I would hope that it would it would draw attention to the ways in which the the terms that we use to describe uh, past actors and particularly religious actors actually imposes an interpretation on the past. We we can't use uh, these terms in a in a loose and, and neutral way. And in fact, I think what's happened in much of the historiography is. Um, mainstream historians of early modern England have sort of unwittingly uh, picked up and deployed a vocabulary to describe 17th century Baptistic individuals that is actually bequeathed to them by 18th century denominational historians. Mm. 18th, 19th century Baptist denominational historians pursuing their own ends and uh, agendas um, sort of set a grid and a framework for thinking about mid-17th century Baptists mm. And while it might have been useful for their denominational purposes, it uh, imposes distortions on how we think of what was happening during the period. And so I hope that Orthodox radicals can help draw attention to that and maybe shine a light on the ways in which uh, our language actually distorts the kinds of stories that we're we're telling about what's going on. It's ironic, isn't it, to think that someone as iconoclastic as Christopher Hill could actually, in using these terms, in advancing the kind of denominational history that he was trying to escape from. Um, Matt, we've taken up a, a lot of your time today, but before we conclude the conversation, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment or what your next research project might be? At the moment, I've, I'm thinking originally when I set out to look at this project, uh, the, the hope was to um, to sort of bookend two Baptistic confessions of faith. They had their confession in 1644, and then they had another confession that was ultimately published in 1689. And, of course, in 1689, they're operating under very, very different conditions, with the Toleration Act having been passed, and uh, space opened up a very different ecclesiological landscape than was on offer in the 1640s and 1650s. And originally, I'd hoped to kind of trace the uh, development of these men and women from 1644, the first confession, to 1689, the second. But uh, obviously in, in doing it, as, as so often happens, it, there was much more there than could fit into one project. And so um, my hope would be over uh, the next few years to continue to press the story further and to trace the, the narrative threads on through past uh, the Restoration and on up until the Toleration Act. Hmm. Well, that sounds like a great project, Matt. I look forward to seeing that when it comes out. For now, thank you for writing this book, Orthodox Radicals, Baptist Identity in the English Revolution, just published last month by Oxford University Press in its series, Oxford Studies in Historical Theology. Thanks for coming on to the show to talk to us today, Matt. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And thanks to everyone else for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thanks and goodbye.